Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for the Word, Christ, that you sent to us to reveal yourself, to make known what had previously been unknowable in this way. Um, There are hints of your revelation in the Old Testament, and it's fully revealed in the person and work of Jesus. And we want to dwell there this morning. Pray that you would, by your Spirit, testify of Jesus through your Word. We have no hope of covering this passage like it should be covered this morning. But I pray that you, Christ as Lord of the Church, would direct us and help us Um, to the areas of emphasis that you want us to see this morning. Would you make us willing in the day of your power? Would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand what God has prepared for those who love him? These things are revealed by your Spirit, and we thank you that you have sent your Spirit to us to testify of Jesus and to grow us in him, to make us look like him. We hope a little bit more of that happens this morning as we delve into this mountaintop pasture, uh, passage of John 1. Thank you for this time uh, with this group. Um, I pray that you bless them as you have blessed me in preparing for this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Uh, today and next Sunday... We're going to be going through two of my absolute favorite passages, if that's proper to say, in all of Scripture. Uh, two of my absolute favorites. Uh, this morning, uh, John 1. Next week, John 17. And I, I, like I said before, I have no delusions of grandeur on this. There, there's no way in the 45 or 50 minutes, or Lord willing... 65 minutes that we have uh, that we will adequately cover either of these passages. But I think doing it this way, giving an overview of these two, will set us up nicely to begin Acts uh, on uh, August 21, I think that's what we're looking at. So um, that's where I'm headed. <clears throat> I... Uh, Several years ago, I can't remember how it was, seven years ago, eight years ago, we went to Aki Simone? Um, I was pregnant with Nathaniel. So, so nine, ten years ago. Okay, so Tammy was pregnant with uh, Nathaniel, uh, and we had Audrey, who was two, and Emma, who was four, and we thought, hey, great, I just listened to John Piper's uh, doing missions uh, uh, when dying is gain, you know, and we're all jazzed up. So, so a friend of ours... Uh, had uh, has a, a, a father-in-law down in SLP, Aki Simone's outside SLP, um, San Luis Potosi, because uh, I, what, Potosi, whatever. That's why I say SLP. Anyway, um, and they have a, a clinic down there that ministers to these uh, these um, indigenous people that they call in Spanish the others. They're kind of the rejected indigenous uh, uh, native people there and um, they are uh, up in the mountains and every week they would go up and visit one of the eight 
villages of these people and do Bible studies. And one of the big things was that in the 1970s, there was a group, a, a couple, that worked with Wycliffe Bible translators, and they went and lived with these people for uh, decades. I mean, and by the 70s, they had translated into the language of those people, which was known as Tenic, the New Testament, just the New Testament, just the New Testament, in the 1970s. They didn't have a written language. Right. They didn't have a written language, so they had to create the language. They had to basically phonetically draft a language for these people in order to, to give them a written copy of the New Testament. And so I went, when we were down there, uh, we'll talk about the mountain climbing experience I had with Emma, uh, that Tammy still blames me for. Uh, risk is a good thing. Uh, so uh, we, we went into the mountains on this truck. Uh, where I rode in the back of the truck uh, up this mountain and as you're going up the guardrail every now and then was broken open and it said watch out a bus just fell off of this you know and the, our driver apparently didn't read those signs because he's doing this stuff and I'm in the back going this is living by faith this is what this is and so we finally get up there and there are these there's this little town this little village of people and I'm I go into they're gonna have a, an adult Bible study and it's all in Spanish and Tenic. And then they have the kids' Bible study. And I figure, if I have any hope of identifying with anybody, I better stick with the kids. So we go in, and I go in with the kids. And I'm sitting there, and they're singing these songs in their language that are typical VBS kind of songs. I know that song, but they're singing it in a different language. And I'm, I'm kind of like humming along and doing the thing. And I put my elbow back on this, on this uh, kind of cabinet thing, and my, my elbow hits this cardboard box and I look in the box and there's a stack of these white books and it says on it something to the extent of New Testament but in another language I just kind of figured it out and I picked it up and I and I it just I'm just overwhelmed this is one of those books this is one of the New Testaments they translated and I asked the lady there I said is this one of the New Testaments see got it uh, yes it is and I just, it just hit me for, we were there in the uh, early 2000s. They had only had a written copy of the New Testament in their language for 30 years. And the missionaries had to teach them how to read it. And the missionaries still had to teach them how to read it. And so I'm holding this book in my hand that these people had just received like 30 years ago, within a generation. They had received this book, and I open it up to John 1 1. Because I know that one. In the beginning was the Word. It just hit me. Wow, it's amazing. In the beginning was the Word, it goes forth. And in this little village here, it went forth 30 years ago, where they finally got the Word of God. As of November 2014, the Bible has been translated into 531 languages and 2,883 languages have at least some portion of the Bible. In 1522, Luther translated the New Testament from the Greek for the German people. Can you imagine what it would be like as Luther reading for the first time in his own language, John 1.1, having translated the word for his people? 
I tried to, I found it online. I'm going to try to read it for you. It's German. I'm not, I am German, but I don't speak German. So here's me attempting to recreate for you Luther reading John 1.1 in German. I'm Anfang war das Wort. Und das Wort war begot. Und Gott war das Wort. And it still sounds awful. <laughs> I, I love the fact that he did it. Why German was the first, I don't know, but there it is. Uh, Luther's translation of the Bible into German revolutionized the German language. It gave them legs to which to build, on which to build a better civilization. Um, about the same time, in 1525, William Tyndale translated the New Testament into a form of what would become modern English. Now, Tyndale finished the whole Old Testament and the New Testament together about 1534. He was executed by the English king for heresy, because kings apparently were very priestly back then, for heresy, including having a Bible in his own language, executed. Um, and, 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 and profligating that Bible in his own language. <clears throat> Curiously, four years later, the English king... Uh, James by name, uh, would also uh, translate a Bible into English. Hello? Uh, would also translate a Bible into English, basically stealing from Tyndale to do the authorized version. Um, it was all based on Tyndale's work. Words are a big deal, aren't they? The fact that we speak is a big deal. Uh, Greek philosophers as early as Heraclitus argued for a principle which controlled the universe and he called it the logos. The logos. Uh, logos means speech or word and obviously we get our word logic from this Greek root. Um, Stoic philosophers would later speak of the logos as reason it was said that all things came to be through this reason. All things were ordered through the reason, and eventually all things went back to the reason. That, that was the Greek, sort of a Greek idea of the universal mind kind of thing that they called logos. In Jewish thought, words were also a big deal. Man's first experience recorded in Scripture was the experience of hearing God speak. And his first task was what? What was it? What did God give man to do? His first task. Be fruitful and multiply. Regard, keep, name, name, name. name the animals. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry. You're all going back to the other thing. No, name the animals. To reflect God by speaking, right? To exercise dominion by speaking. Um, it's been said that speech is an indispensable element of the image of God. God's word is his self-expression. He creates all things by speaking. He keeps all things in order by speaking. Scripture shows that God's word is active in judgment and in grace. God's word is involved in everything he does. His decrees, creation, providence, redemption, ju judgment. He performs all of this by speech. He is distinguished by the prophets uh, from dumb idols because God speaks. They don't. Speech is very important in the attributes of God. His speech is even given divine attributes like righteousness, eternality, and omnipotence. 
Take a casual read through Psalm 119. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. God's speech is righteous. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. God's word, his speech is eternal. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, Isaiah uh, records for us. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Omnipotence, God's word is all-powerful. It does what it is intended to do. There was a Jewish idea that God's word was, in effect, God. Now, there was a point in time in the first century where Hebrew was declining as a spoken language. And so they were moving toward what's called Aramaic. And there were translations of the Old Testament into, uh, I believe they're called Targums. Uh, and part of the problem they were having is, how do we say God in another language giving respect to the divine name? And so they found all these other words that would identify God in, in, uh, in this Aramaic language. And one of them was the word uh, memra, which means word. So they identified word with the name of God, even in the first century. And we certainly see why they would do that, right? I mean, we see this consistently throughout the Old Testament. Um, Psalm 138.2, I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness, for you have exalted above all things your name and your word. His word is exalted as high as his own name, according to the psalmist. So you can see why uh, God's word would, would almost have a, a personality. We see that in, in Proverbs 8. Wisdom cries out in the street. I was there at the beginning with God, uh, basically calling uh, the idea that wisdom was the agent of creation by God. There's this whole idea of word personified almost in Jewish thought, but isn't God one? There's that tension, even in the Old Testament, isn't God one? So in the midst of all of that, that's the intro, in the midst of all of that, Turn to John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, 
but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. And from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. In the beginning, what does that sound like? Genesis 1. Now, why do you say that? In the beginning. In the beginning. Why would John do that? Why would he start that way? Why would he start that way? To equate Jesus as being from the beginning. Okay. To connect Christ with the creation. To connect Christ with the creation. So we have Genesis 1.1 in the beginning... Uh, there is the start of the first creation. And John says, in the beginning, as we start talking about the new creation. Right? In the beginning was the Word. Now, I, I don't like to do the Greek thing a lot. Uh, just This is a beautiful sentence. The way this is constructed in the original language, we can't... It's, it's just really amazing how it's done. In the beginning was the Word. That word was, well, in, in the beginning points to not just let there be light. It is a constant pushback of time. Always in the beginning. Always before. As far back as you can imagine he still was. In the beginning was, way back, way back, way back, as far as we can as finite creatures imagine, he, he was. Well, who does that sound like? If I'm assigning attributes to something and I say it's eternal way back, what am I saying? It's always been. Transcends time. Transcends time. Who, who, who's that? God. And yet, he calls God this attribute. He assigns the name the Logos. He uses it not as an idea of an eternal mind, like the Greeks did. But he says, the Logos is... And you'll see it as he goes through. He, it's a person. The Logos is a person. In fact, in verse 2, he identifies the person as he is a person. As far back as you can... So who are we thinking of? God, at this point, right? In the beginning was the Word. Was the... Okay, so the Greeks say, that's a word I understand. We're used to that. In the beginning was the Word. We can deal with that. Uh, then he says this. The Word was with God. 
Now, my grandfather used to always say that he only eats when he's by himself or with somebody. He was a very profound man. Very heavy man. You have two states, right? You are by yourself or you're with somebody. By saying that the Word was with God, what is John saying? He's distinct from the God that you typically think of, right? He's distinct. He's always in the in infinity past, eternity past, and he was with God. Pros theon. Has the idea of face to face as a man speaks with his friend. With God. Okay. I'm a Greek polytheist. I get it. So, then he says this, and the word was God. Well, what's going on there? Eternity past, always was. With God, face to face is with a friend, was God. How can you be, how can you be with God and was God at the same time? What is he calling for? There's personhood, distinction, and then the way the, that last clause in the sentence works, he puts God at the front. Just, don't ask me how, uh, that's just the way they do it. It emphasizes Godness. The word was God, in essence, the Word was the essence of God, the shared in Godness. So there's personhood in the second clause, and there's being, right? And there you have the seeds of what we understand now as the Trinity, the understanding of the Trinity. God in three persons, one in essence, one in being. And it's in the first sentence. And this is his intro into the gospel according to John. This is, his, this is his track that he's going to hand out on the streets in Ephesus when he goes, I mean, in the beginning was the Logos. Okay, that's a bridge word. I get that. What? And the whole book flows from that understanding. If it doesn't, then the book is blasphemy. It flows from that understanding. The Word always was in the past. The Word was with God, close proximity with God, yet distinct from Him. The Word was God. The Word is eternal and with God, shared in the nature of God. And the NEB translate it, translates it, it's kind of a paraphrased version. What God was, the Word was. Um, when John, throughout this passage, is... is um, is using verbs, he's very specific. When he talks about the word, he uses a, a, a word that, um, that means um, continuous action in the past. When he talks about anything else, he uses a word that contains a point of origin. Okay? So he's 
conveying this idea that the word is eternal, that stuff, everything else is created and has a point of origin. Except when he doesn't, which we'll see in verse 14, but we'll get there in a minute. Um, as far back as you can push time, the word already was. The word does not come into existence. The logos is eternal. The word has always existed. The word is not a creation. And this is the foundation of what John uh, will come later uh, in the prologue, what John will write later in the prologue. Um, all right. So why do we have verse 2? In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Why do we have verse 2? Doesn't that put them on the same level? In other words, he's not uh, just with God. He was, he's not under God. He is on the same level as God. Okay, verse 1 does that though, doesn't it? Does, does it add emphasis to what he had just said? Maybe there's some of that. He is Jewish. It says he instead of Ah. Uh, not an impersonal force that you can control verse, you know, good or evil, depending on how good your mitochondrion level is or whatever. He, he was in the beginning with God. Personhood, right? And I, I think John is also, in, and I'm not alone in this, smart guys, give me this idea. He... Uh, is, is pulling from, I think, Proverbs 8, talking about wisdom being there at the creation. He was in the beginning with God. Wisdom says, I was in the beginning with God. Um, it's not an impersonal force. He is personal. With, he was with God in the very beginning. Uh, all right. We, say, we see John later point to uh, the incarnation as being the wisdom and the word of God. In verse 3, does John leave any doubt as to who created all things? Any doubt there? D does he say all things but himself, the Father, the Father created the Son? Does he say that? This is a huge deal in about the third century when a, a deacon, it's always the deacons, named Arius, uh, starts a little jingle uh, in, the, in the North African churches, there was a time when the Son of God was not. And he was arguing for the, kind of the Gnostic idea of demigod and all this kind of stuff. John shoots that down. He doesn't create himself. He creates everything that was made. He wasn't made. He's always been. So we have this eternal logos. Um... And again, in verse 5, another reference to the creation. The world was covered in darkness before God said, let there be light. Because of Christ, the world now has light. This is who God is. Creation is God's work. If the Logos created all things, then the Logos is divine fully. Notice that John doesn't say most things or some things. All things were made by the Logos. If it exists... It does so because it was created by the Logos. And he continues that introduction by stating that in him was life. And the life he has in mind here is creator life, not creature life. It's different. And that life was the light of men. Light and darkness are both present, but they are not equal. Darkness is passing away. 
All of this was in, in Christ. So you have this great intro, verses 1 through 5, and we're all up here. And then he says, there's a man named John. What? Why go there? Why would he start talking about John the Baptist when he's doing this huge, big thing with the Logos? What do you think? Well, he says in the next verse. And what does he say? He says that John um, was a witness to bear witness to the light. Okay. So is he connecting so, uh, divinity with humanity? In what way? Yes, sir. Being the book is Logos, then John is the first one to bear you know, the Logos of Christ, I guess. The yeah. word that Christ is coming and such. And so it connects from the beginning where Christ was to the one who proclaimed his coming in the wilderness to Christ's actual coming. What's going to happen? According to John, what has happened and what will happen? This. Logos that's out here, that's divine, that's a person that's always been with God and shares in the essence of God, something's going to happen. And it happens in time and space where we exist. And so he goes to something they're all familiar with, a point in history, which is crazy talk. It's crazy talk. What do you mean the infinite is going to come down in time and space? He points to John. And in doing so, he's consistent with the other gospel writers. He, they, they all nod to John as the forerunner of Christ, the last of the great prophets who is coming to usher in what the culmination of what all the prophets have been talking about all this time, the coming of the Messiah. So in, in the, he's, he's following rightly that structure but in doing so like this he's pointing to the, the the stuff that's out here that the Greeks are all in awe of that the Jews are flirting with what's going on here his man and he came in time and space and we were told about it this didn't happen in the secret we were told about it. there was a man who was very odd who was very loud who caused some trouble with the king and stuff. We all know this. In fact, there were, it's thought that at the time there were still some followers of John who were still floating around, still promoting his teaching. I mean, you see it in Acts. We'll see it later. Have you, received, have you been baptized? We received the baptism of John. Well, be baptized in the Holy Spirit. You see the Gentiles ushered in who were following John at the time. So there's some of that going on. And so the Apostle John is talking about the prophet John to say, hey, he's not the one. He even said he wasn't. Stop following him. Come over here. Right? But the point is, time and space. If there were no more prophets, how would the people hear from God? John the Baptist culminates what all of the prophets from Moses forward have done, testify of Jesus. And so it places the logos in time and space, not just out there. Look at verse 9. Good reformed guys. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. 
What is it talking about? The gospel of the word. The gospel of the word, which enlightens everyone. Does everyone mean everyone? Was that? Not just the Jews. Now, why would he need to say that? Why would John need to say that? Um, you remember who is my neighbor? It's kind of important to know that we're all on the same foot, all consigned to judgment. Romans 1 and 2 have happened. Um, Jews were consigned to judgment. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The gospel is coming in without distinction to ethnicity here. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. Christ has come and He's your only hope, regardless of what your cultural boundaries are. Then he talks of rejection of the Logos by some and the acceptance by others. Uh, look at verse 10. He was in the world... And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Uh, what, what is the difference between those who believe and those who don't hear? He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So... The Gentiles don't know him. The world doesn't know him that he created. His own people, the Jews, based on Old Testament stuff, they didn't receive him. But to all who did receive him, who, bore, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So what's the difference? What's the difference between those who believe and those who don't? Their actions. Those that believed, when, those that recognized him when he, when he came, uh, uh, took, his, took in his teaching, and, and those that did not uh, sought to kill him. They believed, right? They trusted that this man who came to earth was who he said he was. They believed. Where'd that come from? Why would his own not believe? Why would the world not believe? And yet these that he's, just, he's talking about, where did that belief come from? God. Being born of God. Then it initiates by being born. Right? Can you make yourself be born? <laughs> it doesn't happen fast enough. <laughs> you can't make... You can't... You're not some, you're not, we don't believe in, you know, pre-existence of the soul stuff. And so you're not out there in the middle, in, 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 in the breach of the space-time continuum waiting. I want to be born, I want to be born, I want to be born. I want. We're not out there doing that. Being born is something that happens to you. You don't control that. How are they born? Not of blood, not because Abraham is my father. Not the will of the flesh. He doesn't mean flesh necessarily in a bad way here, but he's using the word that the Greeks would understand and would be um, offended by, frankly, because all flesh was evil. Greeks thought that matter was evil holding you back from knowing 
the unknown and all this kind of platonic idea there. Um, so not of blood, Father Abraham, not the will of the flesh, nor the will of man. How do we believe? What does it say? But of God. Christ is huge. Christ is coming. You're not going to believe in Him unless you're born of God. But believe in Him. Right? Alright. And then verse 14, it all goes haywire. He's been using that continually past verb. The Logos is continually in the past. Continually in the past. And then he gets to verse 14 and he says this, And the Word became flesh. That word became is what he's used of all the other created things. It has a point of origin. Now, how do we deal with that? If you're a first century Jew, and you're, and you're in the mindset of, uh, Hero Israel, the Lord is one, and he's just telling you, um, yeah, wisdom's always been with God. Okay. Uh, yeah. He, he was face to face. He shares in divine attributes of God. Well, okay. I mean, God's word is righteous. God's word is truth. I, I, I get that. Okay, that's fine. He became flesh. He had a point of origin. Wait a minute. What? Where's the stone? To say that God became man? Them's fighting words. That's a huge deal. He changes the verbs. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Dwelt would mean what? The word there is tabernacled among us. He pitched his tabernacle with us. Now what's that a call to? What does that remind us of? Two and a half years of what now? Exodus. Exodus. And Leviticus. The idea that God came, I will be their God, I will be, and they will be my people, I will dwell with them. And he's saying that God's doing it again in a person. Yep. You had commented earlier that it said, uh, of flesh and of men, uh, not of the will of flesh, but of the will of man. And the idea was the... Uh, Flesh there was bad condemnation for the Greeks, but then the word became flesh, not mm -hmm. the word became man. Right. The word became flesh. Right. He's he's yeah. putting it to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you're saying like how it's, it's have become flesh. Defeating the idea of that flesh is yeah. is bad. Why would God, perfect, become imperfect flesh? Right. right. Um, the logos enters human existence, and that's a huge idea. Mm -hmm. Huge, who is this babbler telling us this stuff on Mars Hill? I mean, this is, the, this is the reaction you see. He became flesh at a particular point in time. The Logos was not eternally flesh. We understand that, right? Before the nativity scene that we put out in the front yard at Christmas time, which is... Horribly wrong. We've got to get that right. We'll figure that out later. Um, before that happened... The wise men weren't there? No, two years old. Um, before that happened, 
<laughs> Never outside in a cave either. That is just ridiculous. Um, Gnostics. Um, before that happened, uh, sort of, uh, he was the angel of the Lord, right? We saw that in the Old Testament. He was uh, in spirit. It wasn't in flesh. This is a huge thing. Point in time, the Word becomes flesh. The eternal experiences time. Think about that for a moment. I realize it's Sunday morning. I realize that we started earlier and that most of you weren't able to get down here and get some coffee. It's okay if you want to quietly and unobtrusively get some. I'm cool with that. Think about that for a moment. <laughs> Mad rush. Uh, think about that for a moment. We think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. It happens. The Eternal One, the Word, the Creator of all things became flesh and stepped into His creation. This is where you lose Jews and Muslims. This is where we step out the door. That's crazy talk. It is a preposterous thought that God would lower Himself in such a way. Can the unlimited, how can the unlimited enter into limitation? How has that happened? Does John tell us? Well, this is what happened. God created one. Does he, does he go into the mechanics of this? You see it? Look close. We don't know. We don't know. He doesn't tell us. He probably didn't know either. And that's okay. Because God's God and we're not. And we have to know everything. We should know that it did happen. Um, faith rests on God's revelation at this point. Well, maybe he just appeared to be flesh. Maybe he was just faking it. What about that objection? There was a Gnostic tale right before they wrote the whole here's how you do the nativity scene thing. Uh, there was a Gnostic tale uh, about uh, the disciples and Jesus walking on the beach or one of his disciples walking on the beach and the, and the disciple looked back and there was only one set of footprints on the sand. Because, you know, spirits don't leave footprints. Um, apparently they can hurl things across the room at you if you're in a horror movie, but they can't leave footprints. <laughs> Whatever. That's not going on here. I mean, if we say he's faking, he was faking physicality, then that's completely inconsistent with the character of Christ to see later on in the Gospels. That would be ridiculous. If he's not truly man, then he couldn't have truly died on our behalf. That's right. Um, John is not talking about some spirit masquerading as a human being. He uses a term that was easily understandable in his day. Uh, sometimes it talks about the, of the material stuff of our bodies. Uh, other times it talks of the whole human nature. At any rate, there's no mistaking John's intent here. The Logos became real, a real breathing human being. Uh, and he emphasizes that in his first epistle, right? That which was from the beginning, which we've seen, which we've heard, concerning the word of life. And he says, take it seriously because if you don't believe this, you're antichrist. And that involves another Hollywood movie and the whole thing. So we don't want to go there. Why would John make this point? 
Why would he make the point that the Word became flesh? We've hinted at it already. The Gnostic idea, which was present in his day, Docetic kind of is what the Docetism is what they call it, where their their flesh was evil, spirit is good, and for Christ to be, to come in the flesh was um, unheard of. Um, so, if you're a dualist but you want to latch on to the message of Jesus that's having traction in the culture, you say that he was faking it or that there was uh, not really physicality. All right. John leaves no doubt about the eternal Christ's physical nature. Um, there's a term in here. And we have seen his glory... Glory is of the only Son from the Father. Only Son, begotten. Only begotten Son? The various translations have given uh, different words for the Greek term uh, monogenes. A, a huge misunderstandings have occurred with, with the term. Um, only begotten is one. One of a kind probably is better or unique. One of a kind like Isaac was one of a kind. Like Isaac was unique. The only Son. And then he goes into this thing of the Logos is seen to have glory, to have divine origin with the Father, and is said to be full of grace and truth. And I love this. Full of grace and truth. What does that mean? What is he saying as a Jew when he uses the, the term that Christ was full of grace and truth? Do you remember, lo, those many moons ago, in Exodus 33-34, when Moses goes up again after the, the cash cow incident. He goes up again to get a new um, set of tablets. And God is there uh, and, 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 give, and, and gives him the tablet and he says, show me your glory. Moses says, show me your glory. Do you remember this? What does, Moses, what does God say? You can't see me. You, no man can see my face. It would kill you. But here's what I'll do. I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock. And there goes the great hymn. I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock. I'll pass by in front of you. Right? And I'll proclaim my name. The Lord, the Lord. I'll have mercy and have mercy. I'll have compassion and have compassion. That's what he says he's going to do. In chapter 34, we see this play out. He says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to, gra slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The words in Greek that are used to describe steadfast love and faithfulness, we translate, we translate grace and truth. And as a Jew, John is saying what Moses couldn't see God has revealed in Christ. Isn't that amazing? The Lord, the Lord, merciful, full of steadfast love and faithfulness, grace and truth in Christ, in the Logos that became flesh. Because we don't, we can't see God. No man has seen God. Paul would say in Corinthians that what I has not uh, no eye can see, no ear can hear it, so you, your empirical guys are out, right? Your scientists are out because we can't use our senses to see it. Nor has it entered in the heart of man. We can't reason out, so your philosophers are hosed. We can't reason out from the inside. 
what God has prepared for those who love Him. But what does He say? These things are revealed by the Spirit. God has to reach down. He has to reveal. He has to act. And man, did He. You can't see me, Moses. Uh, one of the apostles, one of the later apostles, disciples of the time, says, Jesus, show us the Father. What did Jesus say? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I'm full of grace and truth. So if I can't see God, He has to reach down and show me Himself. And that's what He's done, John claims, in this prologue to his gospel. And again, uh, it says, he, he dwelt among us, literally He tabernacled among us. Uh, and, and that's a theme that just runs throughout his gospel about the temple, the tabernacle, the garden, Christ ultimately fulfilling those shadows of things to come. And then in verses 15 through 18, 15 through 17 specifically, he makes note again of John the Baptist's testimony to Jesus. And here we find out who the he is. First time in the prologue. We, 17 verses to get to who we're talking about. Jesus Christ. Now, many times the writers of the New Testament will use Jesus to, to denote his humanity, Christ to denote his uh, messiahship. John uses both here. And it's the first time he uses it in the prologue. And then he says this at the end uh, in 17. For the law was given through Moses, and again, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And then he says something very odd in verse 18. And, and tell me if you think he's lying. No one has ever seen God. Is that true? No one has ever seen God. How do you make sense out of this? Are we aware of some times when guys have seen God in the Old Testament? John, being a good Jew, did he skip that part in Hebrew class? What does he mean? Does he mean more than just see, but know? Like, you know, truly comprehend? I kind of think so. And what would, what would make you say that? Because he has made part of himself known. In what way? What are some of the scenes that we know where people have seen God? This is the backside of Moses. We just talked about that. Jacob fights with an angel, a messenger. Abraham. Abraham, burning bush. Abraham and the three that come to the. That and the Melchizedek. The Melchizedek. Well, Hebrews. Yeah. Okay. I got it. Uh, Fourth guy in the fire. Um, I was trying to think of the VBS names for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Shadrach, Meshach, and Tebed, and we go. That's what it was. Okay. Um, what are some other scenes? What about Isaiah, who says, "I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord high and lifted up." His train filled the temple, and the angels cried, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, and I fell down as one dead. That seemed pretty authentic to me. No one has seen God. 
This does not make sense apart from a Trinitarian understanding of the nature of God. No one has seen the Father. Because all of the things we discussed, that's the pre-incarnate Christ. In fact, John says so, especially of Isaiah, um, in, in, uh, in, in John 12. It says, therefore they could not believe. Notice the ability there. They could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. 41 says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. He equates that vision of Isaiah in Isaiah 6 to seeing Christ on the throne, high and lifted up. It doesn't make sense unless you have a Trinitarian understanding of God. So grab your little oneness Pentecostal friend, go to lunch, and I'll talk about this. It'll be lots of fun. How do you do that? Either John is lying or, he's, or you're wrong. John knows fully well that Isaiah has seen God. No one has seen the Father, but the only Son who is at the Father's side John 1.1, 1, 1, uh, he was face to face with God. He's made him known. He's revealed him. There is no partial revealing or a dim reflection of God. This, revelation by the only, this is the revelation by the only Son who is God. And we see this in Hebrews. The author of Hebrews, <clears throat> Apollos, says, Long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. The Logos, the God-man, Jesus Christ, is divine, and it's repeated and reaffirmed here in verse 18. All right. So today we begin the ending of our snippets in the Gospels with uh, John 1. And next week we'll look at John 17. And these are two passages that are mountaintop passages on the person and work of Jesus. Who is he? Look at John 1. What has he done? What has he testified himself that he's done? Look at John 17. And, and it's, it's, the, it's this gospel. Who Jesus is and what he has done that the Holy Spirit will testify by his working through the church. That's what Jesus promised His disciples in John 15, 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about Me. Acts is the beginning of the record of the church participating in that work of the Holy Spirit, testifying to the person and work of Jesus. Uh, Shia of Lynn calls it, it should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit, right? And that's what we see. Who is Jesus and what has He done? And if we're going to continue to be a part of that work, we need to be very clear about what we're testifying to. I encourage you, spend a lot. I, I just, we just skimmed the surface here. I tried to bring out some stuff. Spend some time in John 1. Just live here for a while. It is amazing to think through. I, mean, I wonder how long it just took him to write it. You ever think about that? I mean, we just think of uh, John 1. It's, that's not the way it works. He's not in a trance and doing the thing. He's working hard 
as a means of sharing the testimony of who Christ is using the words at his disposal and the Holy Spirit superintends through that to put it exactly the way he wants it put. It still work. I don't know where he was when he wrote it. I don't know if he was in prison or if he was on the run or hey, well, there's somebody coming, I better finish this later. I don't know what he was doing. But the point is, he spent a lot of time on it. It is a literary, from just a literary standpoint, from a Greek standpoint, it's a masterpiece. It's amazing. It's a piece of art. Who Jesus is. And it should feed your soul daily who he is. If this is the one we, we love, we trust, in whom uh, is grace and truth that Moses couldn't even see, why would I go anywhere else? Why would I look at anything else? Why would my heart be drawn to anything else? God has to reveal Himself, and He has done so in the most remarkable way possible. He became one of us while losing nothing of His deity. Part of uh, the, the, the language here it says, the Son has revealed Him. That word there could also be translated exegete. You know what exegete is? what Philip does on Sunday morning when he exegetes the scripture, exegesis. He has revealed him. He has, he has made known like a good preacher does the word of God. He's made known the Father. He's a living exegete of the Father. Live there. Um, we're not going to be able to live as we should apart from him. I'm the, another, I'm the vine, you're the branches. We've got that whole thing going on there. We have to feed off of who he is. And this is a great, uh, I almost said trough. I don't want to say that. It's a great plate, a table to eat from who, who Jesus is. All right, so next week, John 17. Read ahead. Any other comments? I know I monologued most of it today, but it's a prologue, so you've got a monologue, a prologue, so there it is. I, yep. I, well, I love that he started with how, how big and transcendent and amazing this word is, and then he goes to the personal. Mm. But I also, I love the fact that John was his cousin, mm. and it, it, I mean, John the Baptist knew him from... The time they were growing up, just in this even point, before they what well, that's true. He left in, left in his mother's womb. There's a right to life. But right um, again, I just think the historicity of John the Baptist testifying to the messiahship of Christ is just an amazing thing because this wasn't somebody who was just starry-eyed who mm -hmm. came from somewhere else. This was somebody who knew him. Mm -hmm. The whole time he was growing up, I and mean, just like his brothers became believers after the mm -hmm. resurrection, is such a testimony to the resurrection being real. Right. I, I just think this. Yeah, they had Thanksgivings how, together. They had Christmas together. They God did all the things. through history, and <clears throat> this guy grew up. Yeah, him. it's a major testimony when somebody who knows you says great things about you. Oftentimes, it's like, well, I know I'm, right. It's an amazing testimony if somebody who's your brother or who's your cousin says, hey, he's God. Well, I don't think my cousin would ever yeah. say he ranks before me because he was before me. You know, I mean, yeah. that's a pretty... Uh, and it pains me that I wasn't able to get into that statement because 
Yeah, I can't get into that statement. It's an amazing thing that he says there. Ranks before me because he was before me is, again, John testifying eternally past of his cousin. So is that verb there, he was before me? That's the, that's the eternity past verb there. Dwell here. Stay in John 1 for a while. It's amazing. I get all tingly. Uh, all right, not in the Barack Obama speech kind of tingly, but anyway, much better. Sorry, I'm all politicized these days. Okay, uh, all right, let's pray, shall we? Where do we go from here, Father? To see a, a vision of your son that is so huge that we can't get our arms around it. Would you drive us to keep pressing in, to know Him? Isn't that the definition of eternal life? To know you and the Son whom you have sent? Would you help us to participate in that? Would your Spirit draw us into the beauty, the majesty, the grace and truth of Jesus? Thank you for this time together. Be with us in the next service, we pray. Do more of this to our hearts, to love Him more and to be drawn to Him more. In Christ's name, amen.